0: Hey, it is Ezra. I want to share a special preview of an awesome new show from the Vox Media Podcast Network and Curved, our sister network that covers home cities and communities. It is called Nice Try, and it is about something that I've been obsessed with forever. Utopias, this idea that we can design from scratch a community, a perfect way of living. it will be so much better than what we already have. Each season, you'll hear stories about people who tried to design a better world and what happens when those designs don't quite go according to plan. Um, these are I don't know. I I really love this podcast, and I really think you will, too. It is worth checking out. This season is called, wait for it, Utopian, and it is hosted by Avery Truffleman. Avery Truffleman, tell me about Nice Try. Well, Ezra Klein, Nice Try is a
1: new podcast from Curb.com, and it's a show about utopias. And that definition— is kind of porous. It covers everything from the advent of suburbia to more cliche, you know, polyamorous multifamily (laughs) communes and the ways in which they kind of seem to inevitably always fail.
0: I love—the reason I want to do this is I love anything about utopias because it it seems like we should be able to figure out a way to make human life work, and we just kind of can't. We just always seem to end up in the muck of it. And, like, the more we try to closely architect it— like, the worse, the eventual <laughs> destruction seems to become. I'm curious how you decided to do a whole season on Utopias.
1: Yeah, I think at this time, someone said this in a quote, and I'm so sorry, I forget who said it, but some, I heard it somewhere. When things are going well, people look to dystopia, and in times of distress, people turn to utopia. Oh, interesting. And they want— I, You know, that's a huge blanket statement. But I think in this time, we're all wondering, like, well, is this it? Is this where we find ourselves? (laughs) Especially in a moment now where I think a lot of people feel trapped by our national identity, by the color of our skin, by our background, by our socioeconomic class, by circumstance, trapped by the very world we live in. And I think we wonder, like, can you just design a place where you can just be?
0: Um, Tell me about your favorite utopia uh, from this season.
1: Well my favorite utopia from this season hasn't come out yet and it's about Biosphere 2.
0: <sighs> Do you remember Biosphere yes, I 2? I'm very excited about that then.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's just an incredible parable starring climate change and geodesic domes and Steve Bannon. And it's just like this crazy, crazy parable. And like a lot of failures, it's just swept under the rug. And, you know, in some ways we like live here in Silicon Valley and some people worship at the altar of failure. And they say like you need to fail and fail to get better. But when it comes time to actually talking about the embarrassing things that actually happened, it's like mum's the word. No one wants to talk about it.
0: Yeah, there's a – the Silicon Valley – definition of failure is weird yeah and like the lack of there's a belief that all lessons are learned from failure in silicon valley and i don't think that belief is true (laughs) that's been one of my um, that there's a way in which failure is integrated into an idea of progress here that is healthy in one way but is also very antithetical to like really developing a appreciation of the possibility of true failure Right. If the idea is that everybody's going to be like super pleased with you if your thing crashes and burns and you run through all the investors' money, and I think there are lessons to be learned from failure that are not always as optimistic as people want them to be.
1: Exactly, exactly. I feel like when we talk about failure in, like, this larger TED Talk sense, it's always, like, still on the road to something. Like, you had to fail and go. It's kind of the hero's Hero's journey. journey, Exactly, exactly. And you, like, go through this fire. And actually, we start by telling the story of Jamestown and how failure wasn't just something they had to, like, persevere through and learn from. Like, it changed that. Like, the failure did something to them and what that failure did was set the template for all european indigenous relationships going forward which is like not a success like that is not, not a success right exactly um and so it's really worth examining and especially looking at biosphere 2 in a weird way the the way i think about it is it's kind of like queering the notions of success and failure cuz nothing's ever final you know right. nothing ever just like succeeds and then it just keeps going forever or fails and then just crashes and burns and then is just, like, done. And so Biosphere 2 is this husk of a dome sitting out in the middle of the desert. They're doing things with it. Some things are working. Some things aren't. And um, it's really interesting.
0: All right. One more question before we get to the thing itself. I think utopias are interesting. The reason I am slightly obsessed with reading about them is that they're a window into the limits of human nature. Mm. To me, right? This idea that we are perfectible and then we try and then it turns out that some part of us wasn't. I'm curious what studying all these utopias has made you believe about humans that you didn't believe when you started.
1: Oh, that's such a good question. Thank you. Um, (laughs) I mean, honestly, it ends up kind of being a story about democracy and just people trying to get along together. And a lot of these utopias are led by one charismatic man, usually— And because that is the simplest way to move people. And they're also built on this idea of stasis. Like, we all believe this one thing, Mm -hmm. and we're following this one guy, and we're just going to keep believing it and keep doing it. And we're going to make our kids believe it and keep doing it. And it's avoiding the inevitable change in mores, in nature, in human relationships. I mean, if you have, you know, if you live with roommates or if you live with a partner, getting along with a small group of people is hard. But getting along with a large group of people is inevitably difficult, and that's just where you—that's where democracy comes in. That's where negotiation comes in. That's where governance comes in, and that's the sticky stuff, and that's the thing everyone's trying to avoid. And at the end of the day, you hear about these communes falling apart with, like, eight-hour-long meetings every Sunday night. Just, like, it's all hard. Like, making your own food is hard. Governing your relationships with other people is hard. Like, and this is not to say that utopia— that some utopian attempts have been more successful. I'm sure there are places out there, there are groups of people who have managed to like go off and live off the grid and like live their ideals, but that's not a utopia because it's still hard. Like it's all (laughs) hard work and it all involves work. And so I think much in the same way that we all in our own lives are just chasing our own happiness and our own wellness, knowing that nothing lasts forever and that it will require work, to maintain it, that no feeling is final, that's just kind of how utopia is. I think when people do find it, it comes in fits and spurts, and it's really, really hard. So what's utopia today? So this is one of my favorites. Um, Next time you're at a restaurant or in someone's house, just, like, take a look at your silverware and turn it over and see what it says on the back. And if it says Oneida or if it says community, it comes from this long history of basically a free love cult that didn't quite crash and burn. It turned into a company. Like, they paid out their members and shares, and they divided up their group house into apartments. And it's still run by a descendant of this. Is it still a free love cult? No. (laughs) It's not. But they have these huge reunions. It's this massive, massive family Again, it's like, is that a failure? Is that a success? Like, the name continues. The brand goes on. The polyamory is
0: gone, but. Everything beca- begins as free love and ends up as capitalism. <laughs> I like think that's, that's the lesson of Utopias. All right, the show is a Nice Try, and here is part of the episode on Oneida.
1: I, I have to be quite honest with you. This is not anything I was ever taught to pay attention to.
2: So hang on, hang on. You go out and have dinner at restaurants, right? Yeah. And you pick up the tableware and you say to yourself, hmm, this is nice or it's not nice, right?
1: I guess so. So I've been looking at tableware lately. Anytime I have the opportunity to go out to eat or go to dinner at someone's house, and I've been turning over my forks and spoons and knives, looking for a word engraved in the back of the handle. Oneida.
2: I usually say that that our product is kind of like jewelry for the table.
1: Paul Gebhardt is the creative director and senior vice president of design at the Oneida Group, which is by far the oldest flatware manufacturer based in the United States. The Oneida brand has been making its jewelry for the table since the mid-1800s. It's helped define the setting of the American table, which Paul says has been the setting for the American family.
2: I'm not, I'm not a family expert, but what I do know is that people still fall in love. And when they fall in love, they set up a home together, typically. And when they do that, they make some decisions about who they are and you know, what their furniture is going to look like, what their kitchen is going to look like, how they're going to live their life together. And that's the point that, that they would encounter our brand.
1: Because Oneida is all about family. Really and truly, especially if you know the full story of Oneida from its very origin. And when did you first hear about your great-great-grandfather?
2: <laughs> uh, so, if you're referring to John Humphrey Noyes, uh, somebody uh, tuned you into the fact that I was uh, family?
1: Yeah, I mean, did you, like, was there a moment when someone sat you down and told you the whole history? or?
2: Oh, yeah, I, you know, I don't have... I don't recall really a point where, oh, wow, I didn't quite realize what went on here um, in terms of utopian experiment. Yeah, it's pretty much always been there.
1: This is Nice Try, a podcast from Curbed. This first season is called Utopian. It's about a perpetual search for a perfect place, which, according to the etymological roots of the very word utopia, does not in fact, exist. I'm your host, Avery Truffleman. Come back in time with me to 1832, where we meet Paul Gebhardt's great-great-grandfather, John Humphrey Noyes, a man who would go on to be the leader of a religious commune with over 300 followers and would later flee that commune after a warrant was put out for him. But way before all that, Noyes was a young
3: seminary student in his early 20s, and he was an awkward young man. He was you know, just very, very socially anxious and always thought people were laughing at him. And he felt very sort of ugly. This is Ellen Wayland-Smith. She wrote the book
1: Oneida, From Free Love Utopia to the Well-Set Table. And the story of
3: Oneida starts with John Humphrey Noyes. Every time he tried to approach a girl at a party or a dance, he would, you know, blush crimson and uh, go away, sort of skulk away, defeated and feeling embarrassed. Noise
1: had converted to Christianity when he was 20. But rather than being a source of comfort in his ungainly youth, his religion was totally torture.
4: My trouble for some days past has been this. I fear I think too much about the rewards of heaven. I seem to indulge an unhallowed ambition to stand eminent in the ranks of heaven.
1: That's an excerpt of Noyes' diary from July 29, 1832. So Noyes thought constantly about the story of the Garden of Eden, and he felt it like a personal loss. He grieved it. He was overcome with shame about living in this world of sin, especially because he was constantly overwhelmed and ashamed by his own
3: sexual desires. He was a very kind of carnal and lusty person, by all accounts. He had this sort of crippling sense of guilt and paralysis.
4: I have been wishing today I could devise some new way of sanctification, some patent, some specific for sin, whereby the curse should be exterminated once for all.
1: Noyes, this tortured, awkward young man, takes his angst and enrolls in the Yale Theological Seminary. And there, in New Haven he learns about this strain of Christianity called perfectionism. Perfectionism preached that, yes, one should choose not to sin, but goodness is less about the sum of small actions and more about who you are in your nature. Basically, if you have a purity of heart and your aim is true, sinlessness is possible on earth. I mean, it's so funny because it seems to me, maybe I'm misinterpreting this, that perfectionism is just like, as long as you have pure intentions and you want to do the right thing and you feel like Jesus is with you, you can kind of do whatever you want and you will be right.
3: Is that fair? At, At its most extreme, yes. It's the idea that God created a perfect universe, therefore nothing can be bad. Anything that I do or think or say cannot be bad because in God's universe, everything's good.
1: Perfectionism was like
3: a cold
1: drink of water to noise. This was a man who felt the weight of sin so
3: deeply he would wake up feeling sick. And he just—he he couldn't, he couldn't deal with this feeling of always being sort of impure, always having this albatross of guilt around his neck. And so this gave him a way out. Actually, a lot of people wanted this same out. There was a religious revival
1: movement going on at the turn of the 19th century— Thousands of Protestants were ditching the Calvinist and Puritan ideals that kept them bogged down under the weight of original sin. They were all craving a new relationship to God, just like noise. So riding this wave, noise starts spreading the idea, mostly through writing, that sinlessness is possible on earth. It was radical, and it was controversial. Ellen Whalen-Smith writes that noise became sort of an official spokesperson for New Haven perfectionism which is how Noyes meets his wife, Harriet. It's also how Noyes meets a follower named Mary Cragen.
3: Your essay on faith was put into my hands. This was a new and startling idea, but the Lord showed me that this was faith.
1: Mary Cragen wrote this to John Humphrey Noyes when she converted to his brand of perfectionism in 1839. And when Mary Cragen converted, her husband, George Cragen, was fired from his job. Just for this association with Noise. Mary reports this
3: news with delight. Bless the Lord. On the 1st of December, he will be without money and without business. How this rejoices me. Mary was
1: relieved to be free of these burdens. Material things, Noise preached, distract people from their closeness to God. The Yale Theological Seminary was not as enthralled by Noise's teachings as Mary Cragen, and in fact, Yale expelled Noise and revoked his preaching license. But that didn't stop him from spreading his beliefs. He relocated to Putney, Vermont. Mary Cragen and her unemployed husband, George, and their son followed him. In Vermont, Noyes continued collecting followers. By March 1843, they were a group of 35. And all the while, Noyes was rounding out his perfectionist beliefs with new philosophies. Like, what is this sex battery theory that he had? Yeah, it's really weird. Sex battery, like electrical battery. Noyes was always
3: trying to connect his religious teachings to the science of the times. You know, science at the time was sort of coming to grips with electricity and trying to understand how it worked. Noyes started to think of Christ as an invisible energy, a battery of nervous power that
1: pulsated through the human body. In a absolutely stunning reversal of his previous shame around sexual desire, Noyes came to view the sexual organs as the medium of noblest worship of God. He believed sex was more than a personal experience between two married people. It was a way to meet God. It was the ultimate recharge. A charge so
3: powerful and electrifying, it actually had the potential to stave off death. If you could rid yourself of all your attachments and your selfishness and sort of connect equally with all other humans you would um, get this sort of clean circuitry going that would therefore do away with all illness and all sickness and eventually death. And sex was was a part of this. And this was all within the confines of holy marriage between
1: two married people. Until the spring of 1846, when George Cragen starts falling in love with Noyes' wife, Harriet, and then Harriet admits she's attracted to George. And then Noise admits that he's attracted to George's wife, Mary. And then Mary's attracted to Noise too. Basically, it turns out these two couples were all hot for each other. And it was a relief for them just to be able to admit it. As Mary Cragen recounted it,
3: The effect was most refreshing to our spirits. We have formed a circle which it is not easy for the devil to break. We find this evidence
1: that our love is of God. And they agreed to leave it at that that they were all into each other, but they wouldn't act on it. Except one day, Noyes and Mary Cragen take a walk. A long walk. By the end, they're tired, and they sit down together. And suddenly, they're overcome with desire.
4: Mrs. Cragen distinctly gave me to understand that she was ready for the full consummation. I said, no, I'm going home to report what we've done. It's kind of hot. My wife promptly and entirely sanctioned our proceeding.
1: They all reckon if sex is a battery that helps you live forever,
4: then more of it is good. The upshot of the conference was that we gave each other full liberty all round, and so entered into complex marriage in the quartet form.
1: Complex marriage. The idea that this foursome would be engaged with each other, strictly heterosexually, But all members would be equal to each other and God. They would discuss their relationship communally with joint decision-making and constant reflection. Although most of their interactions were deferring to and driven by John Humphrey Noyes. The complex marriage then extended to include more couples, eventually making 10 people in total. Although they kept it a secret at first, even from the rest of Noyes' followers— As you can imagine, word of this 10-person couple eventually leaks to the town of Putney. And it is absolutely scandalous. Adultery is illegal in the 1840s, and arrest warrants are issued. And so the Noyes, Cragens, Leonards, Millers, Skinners skip town. And they move to upstate New York, to a town called Oneida. That was just a preview. To hear the full story, subscribe to Nice Try on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app.